0: Phil Dixon, you've got the number one draft pick of Kansas City Monarch great pitchers, and you've got the choice of John Donaldson, Bullet Rogan, or Satchel Paige. Who do you take and why? Bullet Rogan. No
1: question about it. He's going to hit more than Donaldson. <laughs> Certainly more than Paige.
0: <laughs> yeah, Satchel got a hit. He was going to tell you about it. John Donaldson may have been more talented. Satchel Paige was clearly the biggest star. But this player did things that neither one of them could have ever dreamt of. This is the story of the Negro League's first great two-way star, Wilbur Bullet Rogan. Being in Denver, for the 2021 All-Star Game was really special. Number one, we didn't get this opportunity in 2020 because of the pandemic, but also 2021 was special because of a young man named Shohei Ohtani. Shohei put on a show, literally. And the phenomena that has become Shohei Atani has opened up the opportunity For me and the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to talk extensively about the great two-way stars of the Negro Leagues. The likes of Ted Double Duty Radcliffe.
2: Two-way star, Double Duty Radcliffe, with journalist Stephen Banker.
3: I was with the Homestead Grays in 1931, and we played the Lincoln Giants in uh, Yankee Stadium for the championship Satcha pitched the first game and won and I called him in the first game and I pitched the second game. Satcha won four to nothing, I won three to nothing. And so Damon Runyon, the old sport rider gave me that name that had washed the price admission of two to see double due directive in action. That's how I got the name.
0: Here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we have a bronze statue of a guy who stands about five eight, and he's in right field. And the statues on our field of legends represent Negro League players who are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And they represent the first group of Negro Leaguers to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And this player in right field is Leon Day. Leon Day is enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher. And folks, he was one of the Negro League's greatest pitchers. My dear friend, the late, great Monty Irvin would say of Leon Day that the great Bob Gibson had absolutely nothing on Leon Day. That Leon Day was just as good and perhaps even better than the great Bob Gibson. Honestly, that is frightening. And Leon Day played every position on the diamond except for catching. And the great Buck O'Neill would say of Leon Day that he was a better center fielder than he was pitcher, and he's in the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a pitcher.
2: Former Newark Eagles owner, Effa Manley, recorded in 1977 with interviewer William Marshall, courtesy of the Louis B. Nunn Center for Oral History, University of Kentucky Libraries. Some of them my
4: heart just aches for, that Leon Day, oh, He played every place on the field except catch. I don't mean he filled in. He played them. Mm
2: -hmm.
4: Every position. But he was such a magnificent pitcher that we ended up using him entirely as a pitcher. Uh, He was one of those tragedies of being born a few years too soon.
0: I theorize that because their roster sizes were not as big as Major League Baseball's rosters, They could not afford to have a four or five man pitching rotation where their only assignment was to pitch. They needed versatility in those athletes. And so they sought players who were two-way stars. And thusly is why you had so many great two-way stars in the Negro Leagues. And that leads us to the player who we will discuss today at length, And he was perhaps the Negro League's first two-way superstar because he came into the Negro Leagues in 1920. And he was a member of the great Kansas City Monarchs as William Big C. Johnson, who played with Rogan on the 25th Infantry Records, one of the greatest baseball teams of all time. And it was an Army team. This Army team, likely would have been a contender in Major League Baseball if they had been playing in the Major Leagues. And what Big C said about Rogan was this. Oscar Charleston was everything, but Rogan was more. Rogan could do everything, everywhere. And as the immortal Leroy Satchel Page would say, Invented Satchel Page fashion, he was the only pitcher I ever saw, I ever heard of in my life, was pitching and hitting in the cleanup place. And according to Rogan's longtime catcher, the great Frank Duncan, who would become a legendary manager for the Kansas City Monarchs after he was done playing. And Duncan said this of Rogan, if you had to choose between Rogan and Page, you'd pick Rogan because he could hit. You get my point?
2: It's not just a point, but a lifelong passion for historian Phil Dixon. Phil is the author of Wilbur Bullet Rogan and the Kansas City Monarchs, and he's also a winner of both the Casey Award and the Macmillan Sabre Awards for his writing and research into Negro Leagues history. Phil Dixon on the legend of Wilbur Bullet Rogan.
1: Well, he was the first star developed by the new Negro National League. In other words, few people knew anything about him because he had been playing in the Philippines. Uh, over in Hawaii. So few people in America had ever seen him. So when they start the Negro National League in 1920, he pitches his first game. Now he's mustered out of the military and that was on July 5th. So this month, 101 years ago, he pitches his first baseball game and he pitches against the league champions of that year, the Chicago American Giants and i think he struck out 13 that day it was some, <laughs> some really big number and then by then uh, they had played a few exhibition games and when they got back to Kansas City the publicity and this new recognition of rogan uh drew 20,000 people to old association park and uh, because now they had a giant killer
0: because what rogan brought you was this exceptional not only arm, but this exceptional bat. His bat may have been the biggest bat in the Kansas City Monarchs lineup, and he was their star pitcher. And of course, the great Casey Stingle would say that Bullet Rogan was one of the best, if not the best pitcher that ever lived. That is high praise for, again, one of the Negro League's Early two way superstars. There was this uh, legend, and basically, Casey Stengel started it
1: by saying that he had discovered Rogan and he came back uh, and told Wilkinson in 1920. But when I did my research, I found out that Rogan had actually been home on furlough mm-hmm. and played for the All Nations, which was J.L. Wilkinson, team. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> hey, not only that, how hey, about, about this? The, the All Nations had two Hall of Famers on it that year, uh, Torrenti, and yeah. uh, also Mendez was on the team. Hey, look, and they had John Donaldson too. So, uh, yeah, but that, uh, that All Nations team was the truth. It was yeah, it was a good one. And so Roka, not only did he play uh, some games for them in Kansas City, he played a game with them in Topeka, and even pitched against uh, the St. Louis Giants. Who you know were original member of the uh, Negro National League in 1920. So that kind of blows Casey Stingles' record out the water.
0: And again, the legend around Bullet Rogan, the folklore that is there, is tremendous. And when they played these
1: exhibition games, everybody wanted to see Rogan. So in 1922, he did win 20, that's what the league and exhibition. Then he goes on to strike out over 100 men. And then as a batter, he had over 100 hits. He scored over 100 runs, stole 20 bases, hit 20 home runs. And if you count what he batted in the Association Park, in 116 at bats, he batted 457.
0: That's all? <laughs>
1: yeah, I know.
0: And these are the things that legends are made of. He led the Negro Leagues folks in stolen bases when he was 38 years old. He swung a bat that was believed to be heavier than Babe Ruth. And yet Rogan stood only five foot seven inches tall and maybe weighed 160 pounds. He pitched with a no wind up motion He threw the kitchen sink at you. He threw fork balls. He threw spit balls. He was a master of the palm ball. And of course, he had a dominating fastball, hence the nickname Bullet.
1: Well, you know, he uh, threw his uh, curveball just as hard as he threw his fastball. So his curveball was a sharp breaking. So at the last minute, you couldn't tell if it was going to be the fastball or curveball. But uh, no, his palm ball that he developed and that was his patented pitch. Now a lot of guys in the major leagues weren't using the palm ball at that time as a change of pace, but Rogan had developed that grip, and so he would palm that ball and drag that toe. Man, I'm <laughs> telling you, he would uh, make a
0: difference, and uh, guys would be swinging a week before it get there. And uh, but yeah, he was a, a trendsetter. And again, as my friend, the late great Buck O'Neill, and of course, we will have a show. On Buck O'Neill, we might have two or three shows on Buck O'Neill before it's all said and done. But Buck O'Neill would describe Bullet Joe Rogan as having what he called a heavy fastball. But in the same voice, he would say, if you saw Ernie Banks hit in his prime, then you saw Bullet Rogan. The list of accolades go on and on and on about a player that most folks had never heard of.
1: When they played at uh, Association Park, I think that first year, uh, he had four home runs in there. This is 1921, he had four home runs. And by 1922, he hits nine home runs in the same park. And this is their home field, and these are league games. So when he goes on the road and, and places like Mac Park, in Detroit, which was a bandbox, man, they would tear tear that place to pieces. The Monarchs might hit nine home runs all year. <laughs> then they go to uh, Detroit and hit nine home runs in one series. Man, the Monarchs would tear that place <laughs> to pieces, led by Bullet Rogan. So if he had played in those parks and played as many league games as maybe a Turkey Stirs or a Cool Papa Bell or a Muse Suttles, who played for those. Park's,
0: oh man, we'd be talking about even a greater achievement. Field makes the case that Bullet Rogan was the greatest all-around player of all time. And that includes the great Oscar Charleston, whom Buck O'Neill believed was the greatest baseball player he ever saw for his all-around prowess. And
1: by that, I mean someone who can hit and someone who could pitch. But he also had other facets of his game. He could run. Yes. He could play great defense and he could play multiple positions. So um, I wanted to talk about the greatest all-around baseball player. Now you're in a league that only a few players can enter. You know, you know one other thing that, uh, that I think people ought to know, you know, people talk about his nickname. Well, back when Rogan came along, the white newspapers always called him Bullet Joe. But no black newspaper ever called him Bullet Joe. It was just Bullet. And that kind of shows you how the game is covered from a white aspect to a black aspect. Exactly. Because the white newspapers were trying to make him a pocketbook version of a pitcher named Bullet Joe Bush. Who pitched for the Yankees? Who had won 26 games, I believe, in 1922. So they're trying to make him a pocketbook version, and black writers weren't having it. So you you know you're talking about all these writers coming out of uh, in Kansas City, the Sun, and they only called him Bullet. And so when I wrote my book about Rogan, I tried to show people how whoever's writing the stories kind of controls the information, and so it's real important that we had these black newspaper's writing about Rogan as well.
2: Wilbur Rogan was never going to be the Negro League's version of a white player like the white press had made him out to be. He was his own man. And that's to say, Bullet Joe Bush was a fine player in his own right. 195 wins in the majors, a .253 career batting average, and a no-hitter in 1916. But still, he was no Bullet Rogan.
0: Rogan faced his share of Major League legends on the barnstorming circuit, and they all got to understand just how good he was. And one of my favorite recollections of 1929, and Rogan is playing in the California Winter League for the Philadelphia Royal Giants, who he would actually later go on a tour of Japan with in 1933. And they are playing an all-star team led by Hall of Famers Al Simmons and Jimmy Fox. And Fox did okay against Rogan that day. He goes three for three, but Simmons didn't stand a chance. And according to Chet Brewer, Simmons was trying to crawl to hit that legendary palm ball that Bullet Rogan had. He goes 0 for 5 against Rogan with three strikeouts. The Chicago defender, who covered the game, said that the All-Stars had to look at the blinding speed of Rogan, and they melted before it. Rogan was never faster in his life, and the stars merely blinked at many of his offerings as they streaked across the plate. Bob Feller, who wasn't always prone to giving accolades to anybody, But he also had to tip his cap to Bullet Rogan because after seeing Rogan play still a base, get three hits, including a hit off a fella, he had to acknowledge, I can only imagine how good he must have been when he was young. Bullet Rogan was 48 years old at that time.
2: It wasn't a question of whether Bullet Rogan and the Monarchs belonged with the Bob Fellers of the world. It was a question of whether the Bob Fellers of the world belonged with the Monarchs. Historian Phil Dixon.
1: In 1922, I don't know if you knew this, uh, Babe Ruth came to um, Association Park to play the Monarchs. Rogan and Ruth Curry pitched the game, but in the game, uh, Babe Ruth didn't hit a home run, but Babe Ruth did come in to pitch, and Oscar Johnson hit a home run off of him.
0: Rogan would lead the Kansas City Monarchs to a Negro Leagues World Series title in the inaugural Negro League World Series in 1924 in one of the most dominating individual performances, I think, in baseball history. Because again, he dominated on the mound and he dominated at the plate as he almost single-handedly led the Monarchs to win the 1924 Negro League World Series. They beat the Hildale Daisies out of Derby, Pennsylvania, and they would win five games to four with one game called because of darkness. And the legend of Bullet Rogan was now taking on really a life of its own. He was a one-man wrecking crew.
1: <laughs> Not only was he the best pitcher in the World Series, and and they didn't play a seven game. They played like a ten game. They played
0: a ten game series. Yeah, no, they, we,
1: they bounced from city to city. I think they had three games in Kansas City, a couple in Baltimore, two in Philadelphia. And of course, they finished up in Chicago, and uh, Rogan just dominated the whole thing. And 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 the thing was, if there was an MVP, he was the MVP. And of course, the Monarchs won that year. Yeah. Uh, now now the interesting thing is. The next year, Hilldale and the Monarchs line up again, mm-hmm. but the the Monarchs had played in St. Louis and they they beat the you know the Negro League season was split in the halves, so the Monarchs had one half and then they played the St. Louis Stars who had won I think the first the second half and they played in a playoff right and Rogan in that particular game was outstanding, star player, so he comes back home and he's playing with his son mm-hmm. and he, he puts his uh, knee on the floor and a needle sticks in his uh, kneecap. Now this is just, they're on they're getting ready to go to the world series and they could not get that needle out. They tried magnets and they tried everything to get that needle out without doing surgery and they weren't able to. So they had to perform surgery and Rogan missed the world series yeah. and the monarchs, we're done in five games. And I think, remember, the newspaper saying, is one man a team? Without Rogan, he's a one-man team. And uh, if there was a game you needed to win, you knew in the 1920s who you had to pitch. And it was
0: Wilbur Bullet Rogan. Rogan, who had enlisted in the Army early, he lied about his age to get in the Army. And so there's always been a little bit of a misnomer about just how old Bullet Rogan was. He may not have been quite as old as people thought because people thought he had enlisted at the appropriate age, but he had actually pushed his age up so that he could enlist in the Army in World War I. There was a lot of
1: misinformation out there, such as when he was born, uh, because, you know, <laughs> Rogan, when he went to the military in 1911, he boosted his age up by four years to get into the military. And of course, Oren Murray told me that the reason he joined the military because he wanted to get away from his stepmother. Stepmother, yes. Ophi And so uh, he joined the military, boosted his age up by four years. So when uh, people started researching and they would go to the census and they, or they would look at his uh, record, they would find this uh, wrong date.
0: And coincidentally, there were four players from the Negro Leagues who served in World War One who are now enshrined in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Bullet Rogan, Boo Joom, or Judd Wilson. uh, Of course, the immortal Oscar Charleston. And Big Bertha, Louis Santop, who earned the nickname Big Bertha from the German artillery rifle by the same name. And Louis Santop, folks, could stand at home plate and throw the ball over the center field fence with ease. All four, of course, served in World War I, and all four are in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And of course, Bullet Rogan was part of the 25th Infantry Records team, as I mentioned, was one of the great baseball teams of all time. Uh, Not only were they in the military, but they were in the military at
1: the time that the military was not integrated. Yeah, There was only four places you could go. There was four units. It was going to be the 24th Infantry, the 25th Infantry, the 9th Cavalry, or the 10th Cavalry. That was it. So you were going to be in those units. And all of those units played baseball. Now, what's interesting is the 9th Cavalry were, was trying to get Rogan into the 9th Cavalry. And the 25th Infantry heard that they were going to be stopping off in san francisco before they shipped out you know overseas and so some guys from the 25th infantry met them there got them so drunk that they missed the transport the next morning <laughs> and that's how they ended up in the 25th infantry instead of the 9th cavalry they were essentially a major league team but they were in the military first of all they're not in the states at the time that Rogan joined them, they're in the Philippines. And that's where he's making all of his, uh, his accolades in the Philippines and Hawaii. As a matter of fact, uh, they said that he was the greatest baseball player in Hawaii when he was there. And, that's, and that was printed long before he got to the Negro National League. And you got to imagine this. He's in his early 20s. But he's not in the league. He's playing with the top military team because they beat everybody who came to the island. There were some powerful uh, semi-professional teams they were bring out of California, San Francisco. They, Rogan would clean them
0: all up. Bullet Rogan, after he would finish his playing career, would become a manager for the Monarchs. And initially, his role as a manager wasn't well-received by a lot of the players, particularly the younger players, because he was so tough. And, and I do believe, because he had served in the military, the, he was a very strict disciplinarian. And he was a no-nonsense guy when it came to it. And I just don't think he trusted the young players. And, and so he was a little tough on them. George Giles
1: uh, told me that when he first came up, his first year, Hawkins was the first baseman, and um, he was kind of just kind of working his way into the lineup. But the Monarchs, including uh, a Rogan, they wouldn't allow him to drink water. He, he comes to the game, he couldn't drink any water until the game was over. And uh, that's how tough they were. He said that they released Hawkins, I think, in 1928, and he came to Rogan. He said, Rogan, he said, I'm drinking water this year. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I remember uh, Maurice Doolittle Young, he came up in 27 the same year that uh, Giles had came up and he said before the game, he said he had to um, shine to Drake's shoes and then uh, he had to go get a quarter whiskey for uh, Hurley McNair. And <laughs> that was his rookie punishment that he had. <laughs> so <laughs> those old guys, they were pretty hard on the youngsters coming in, including Rogan. But the thing about Rogan, Rogan was a player's player so uh, there would be times that he would come out like uh, chet brewer told me that uh he was pitching a game and rogan told him he said throw this guy a curveball and so uh, uh, chet brewer good pitcher threw him a curveball and the guy hit it out the park so rogan comes to the mound he said didn't i tell you to throw the guy a curveball he said i did throw him a curveball and he said rogan just walked away and chet brewer said He thought everybody's curve was like his curve. Like his curve, (laughs) (laughs) What He said hardly wasn't nobody's curve like like Rogan's curve. So he said, I did throw him a curve ball.
0: (laughs) But as he kind of got a little bit more experience as a manager, he became, I think, a little less strict and a whole lot more nurturing. And then Bullet Rogan would also become an umpire in his later life in baseball. He owned a pool hall here in Kansas City, Kansas. And Bullet Rogan would spend the rest of his living life in Kansas City. And Bullet Rogan would be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 1998. And my friend, the late, great Buck O'Neill, was very much responsible for helping get Bullet Rogan into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I remember it was my first year working for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And we were all so excited that Bullet Rogan had earned his place, his rightful place in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. I know Buck was so excited and all of those who then were a part of the Veterans Committee and Monty Irvin and others who built the case of why Bullet Rogan should be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Quite frankly, Bullet Rogan should have been in the National Baseball Hall of Fame well before 1998. But it finally occurred. And uh, I remember his son, who I got to know through the years, Wilbur Rogan Jr., giving the great Hall of Fame speech on behalf of his father. And going through some mail,
3: I came across a letter from a retired Master Sergeant, Bertram Beagle, who was in the 25th Interview with my dad. He says he never heard anyone call him bullet. He says when he was in the service, they called him cap. Beagle says in the army, a captain was somebody. And said when my dad was pitching, he was somebody. (laughs) He says that when the 25th Infantry was playing ball, they would all sit in their starched khakis in the right-field bleachers. And when my father came to bat, they would all chant, touch them all, Cap, touch them all. He was generally good for one or two home runs. And he says the last time he saw my father play was in Zula, Montana in 1938. And as he sat in the stands, that day, when my father came to bed, he remembered 20 years earlier what they used to chant. Touch them all, Captain. Touch, Touch him them all. And he did.
0: There was tremendous pride for all of us at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum that Rogan had finally took his place amongst the immortals in the game because Bullet Rogan was indeed one of the legendary stars of the Negro Leagues. And so I tip my cap to Shohei Atani for being the phenomena that he is and now sparking interest in those great two-way stars so that we can now bring back to life a player that I think many of us wish we could have seen Play And that's the great Wilbur Bullet Rogan, the Negro League's first two-way star. Coming up next, a conversation with the man in attendance for the legendary Hall of Fame speech and the grandson of the bullet himself, Mr. Carl Logan.
3: every game from the first pitch to the last out of the world series what about my hometown announcers they're on the
2: serious xm app they built it knowing you would come
3: ray there's even an entire radio channel filled with experts talking baseball all day long is this heaven no ray it's mlb network radio channel 89
2: this summer experience negro leagues 101 a celebration of the 101st anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City. For more information, plus event schedules, video exhibits, and safety guidelines, visit nlbm.com and follow the museum on Twitter at nlbmuseumkc and follow Bob at Prez.
0: Well, Mr. Carl Rogan, welcome to Black Diamonds. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing well, thanks. I'm just, uh, you know, just dodging the bullets and keep on pushing. Well, that's all we can ever do. Yeah, that's all we (laughs) can ever do. Uh, Things are well here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And this podcast that I've been hosting now for several months has really kind of gained some momentum. And people are loving learning about these legendary ball players that many had not heard of before. And, and your grandfather is one of them. And, and so <laughs> right. as the grandson of a legend, when did you realize just how great an athlete your grandfather was? Growing up, people would tell me
4: uh, or ask me to, you know, what about... Uh, your grandfather, how great was he? Or, you know, what did you think about him? And uh, my grandfather was family. We called him Papa. Uh, he he was not this magical hero that everybody was looking up to. He was my grandfather. And we used to tease him about his skinny legs. <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't until, well, we got a call from Kansas City when, uh, oh, I think it was Larry Lester looking for him and they were talking about, uh, the possibility of my grandfather being inducted into the Hall of Fame. And that's when I had, you know, a deja vu of all the stories and things that I had grown up with just started to surface, you know, concerning some of the things that he did. But it wasn't until later in life, it wasn't when I was young, it was when I was older, that I could really appreciate it.
0: If you were sizing up your grandfather, he we was seven maybe 185 pounds, I'm not sure you would have just instantly assessed that this guy was such a tremendous athlete until he starts to play. And, uh, you know, to see that ball as Buck O'Neill would describe his fastball as a heavy fastball. If your nickname is Bullet, you know you're getting it up there in a hurry. (laughs) And to see that coming from this guy who's five foot seven inch tall who doesn't even use a windup. And the ball is exploding out of his hands. But then to see him go into the outfield and play a beautiful outfield and then to hit fourth in the Monarchs lineup. Now, we're not talking about anybody old lineup. We're talking about the Kansas City Monarchs who consistently (laughs) had great teams and a litany of great stars that could have very easily been in that role. And for this guy who was their ace pitcher, to be hitting in the cleanup spot. That's pretty impressive. Well, you know,
4: I agree, and when I look at him, and even now when I think back, uh, he is not the picture of a person that you would think would be an athlete. He he just didn't have the size, he didn't have, you know, he didn't have any of the characteristics that you would consider, you know, a person of that caliber. Uh, he just looked like an ordinary person, and if you would put a ball in his hand, you said, okay, well, just, you know, let's see what you got, you know, and with no expectation. But once you see, (laughs) once you put the ball in his hand and you, and you watch his mental frame change, you realize, you know, Hey, this is not just anybody that you're talking about.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, he wasn't. And it didn't take him long to earn the respect of his peers and the adulation of the fans who were coming out in groves to watch him pitch and to watch him play the outfield. And as Satchel Page would say, he is the onlyest, and only Satchel could say it in that way, the onlyest yeah. player that I ever saw pitch and hit in the cleanup position. And so when Satchel gives his nod, you're also pretty special. I wanted to share this story with you and to get your reaction because I think it speaks of the confidence that your grandfather had. And this comes from a book called Black Ball Stars written by John Holloway. And this was the winter of 1924-25. Your grandfather was playing for Armendariz in the Cuban League. And the story goes that Bullet was pitching in the championship game. He had a one run lead in the ninth inning. The bases were loaded. Cuban Hall of Famer Alejandro Ohms was up. Now, Ohms was a famed curveball hitter. Rogan's catcher was fellow Hall of Famer Raleigh Biz Mackey, the best in the Negro Leagues. And, and he knew that Ohms was a great curveball hitter. So he called for your grandfather's fastball, and your grandfather shook him off. And so Mackey goes out to the mound. And he said, "Now, Bullet, you know this man can hit a curveball." Your grandfather said he can't hit mine. Mackey said, "You got to be crazy." Rogan answered, "You do the catching, and I'll do the pitching." Your grandfather threw home three straight curveballs. And struck him out.
4: (laughs) You know, I can believe that. (laughs) And you know why I can believe it? (laughs) My grandfather used to tell me, you know, trash talking didn't start on the playground. I mean, that's where it starts. But then as you go up in the high school, college, and in pros, uh, I mean, it gets even deeper. And it's all a mind game, you know, from the way I look at it. But my grandfather used to say, he said, I would tell a batter what pitch I'm going to throw him, and I'd dare him to hit it. <laughs> 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 and I said, I mean, that's, that's confidence, you know, and knowing what you got and, uh, and just showing your stuff, you know, but get, get into their mind, you know, I'm better than you. And I'm going to give you my best and you can't do nothing about it. So I didn't think much about that statement. Uh, I mean, I'll tell you, hey, you know, everybody's got bragging rights. But I didn't think much about that until I was reading a stat where he struck out 25 batters in one game. (laughs) 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 That made a believer out of me
0: instantly. (laughs) Yeah, no, he was mowing them down. He was mowing them down. Now, had you caught wind of any of these comparisons that were being made with your grandfather to the great Shohei Atani, who is now, of course, playing for the Los Angeles Angels and creating quite the stir? Had you been aware of his feats and the comparisons that were being made to your grandfather? I saw one article uh, that was written by.
4: Oh, was it 5:30? I'm not sure the the company, but I just saw the one article where they talked about Otani. But before him, there was somebody else that that really paved the way, or was kind of the founder of that. You know, I mean, just just of the stats that they had talked about, and that was my grandfather, Bullet Rogan. Yeah. And, but that's the only that's the only article that I've seen. But that was quite informative and and quite impressive. Uh, when you start merging the two and the, the information that they had on both of them.
0: You yeah, know, it's 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 pretty special. And and like I said, it, it gives me great pride that the success of this kid from Japan has created this this heightened interest in the Negro Leagues because they had so many great two-way stars. And your grandfather being a part of the monarchs in 1920, when the Negro Leagues formed was really that first great two-way star from the Negro Leagues. And becomes so right. <laughs> kind of the measuring stick, so to speak, you know, as we look at that litany of great two-way stars, because he was there when the Negro Leagues were formed and had such a tremendous career, uh, even prior to the formation of the Negro Leagues. i was just curious, did he ever talk about that great Army team that he was a part of?
4: Well, not uh I guess not in specifics, but just in the research that I had, had done on him. I mean it just sort of confirmed a lot of things that he said. You know, I looked at he went uh when he joined the army, was in the twenty fourth infantry, uh probably where he started polishing his skills in baseball. And then when he uh, got discharged and, and re enlisted with the twenty fifth infantry, which were called the records, I mean, for a great reason, in a three-year period, you know, they had a record of 64 and three. And considered one of Uncle Sam's, you know, greatest ball teams that that existed. He didn't really talk about his army much. He just talked about baseball in general and maybe some more specific individuals when he got
0: into the Negro League itself. I want to go back to nineteen ninety-eight. I had just begun in an official capacity here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. I had signed on to become the museum's first director of marketing in 1998. So I left my corporate job, took this leap of faith to join this fledgling museum that was going to preserve and celebrate the rich history of Black baseball. And it was, for me, when I got introduced to this museum, it was love at first sight. And my first year as staff here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, we get the word that Bullet Rogan was being inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And I remember how excited Buck O'Neill was because I think for Buck, he had accomplished one of the things that he wanted to accomplish. And I knew he had to kind of navigate the landscape very carefully because he did not want people to accuse him of Monarch's biasness. But he knew all along that Bullet Rogan deserved to be in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And as you know, he had worked so diligently to get Negro League players in there, along with others who served on the Veterans Committee. But I right. remember after the Veterans Committee's decision to include your grandfather, just how excited He was. And I knew your father. I got to know your father because he participated in many events here. But can you share with us what it was like when you guys got the call to let you know that your grandfather had indeed reached the pinnacle for an athlete to be included in the (laughs) National Baseball Hall of Fame?
4: It was my father that called me. He was in Kansas City and I was here in Minneapolis and he said he had just gotten a call from Buck O'Neill, and Buck told him that Buck told him that he made it. <laughs> we got him in. He made it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and I sat back, and I mean, I had chills that went up and down my spine. I just, you know, my heart went in my mouth. I, my goodness! I, and all of a sudden, I started. <laughs> it just happened. I started thinking about all the things that my grandfather said about how great he was, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but at the time when I was growing up and he was talking about these things, he probably never figured that any of this, that what he was telling me would ever come to light. And that all of a sudden confirmed. And it occurred to me that my grandfather was giving me a legacy a, a verbal legacy of his life and it all came to, you know, it all came down to the hall of fame. I mean, that is honestly, you know, I, I thought it was an, an absolute miracle and I just wanted to share it with everybody. You know, if you just can't know growing up with someone like that and then that the pinnacle, the, the ball players that I used to love looking at and enjoying you know, they were, on a pedestal, and now that he is on that same pedestal with them. And then I would be able to go to Cooperstown and rub elbows with all the players that I had just loved and enjoyed listening to over the years. So it it was just a phenomenal time just hearing that announcement.
0: Yeah, it, it gives me chills just to hear you recount, you know, what that moment was like, because I can tell you this, Carl, we felt the same way here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And like I said, this is my first, you know, kind of connection as a staff. Now, I had been volunteering for the museum, but this was really my first kind of real exposure to this kind of recognition for Negro League players outside of when we opened the new museum back in 1997. So this was really special. And so when you guys get to Cooperstown, and now your father is taking the platform and he's going to deliver the acceptance speech for your grandfather. What was that moment like? First of all, I was, uh, you know, I was praying, <laughs> you know, just let him do what he wants
4: to do. <laughs> you know, let him get it out. You know, he'd been practicing and, and uh, I didn't hear any of the practice, but some of the other people were that were uh, so death had been in touch with him and and I'm saying you know this is this is the moment of truth and the whole world is going to be watching and I just wanted him to be relaxed and uh, and just give the presentation or his speech the way that he wanted to and and it came out fine
3: there were many great ball players in the negro league i expect my dad not to be the last one touched by the veterans committee no hall of fame is complete without the likes of Smokey Joe Williams, Mule Subtle, Turkey Stearns, Biz Mackey, and fellow Monarch Hilton Smith and Willard Home Run Brown. Hopefully someday they can say the National Baseball Hall of Fame has touched them all.
0: You know, we were also extraordinarily proud of him. Like I said, we spent many occasions with your dad here at the museum for various events, particularly as we were reuniting members of the Monarchs for certain things, our salute to the Negro Leagues and other events. And so, you know, it was really kind of something that we were all, you know, very proud of the family, but particularly your dad and in, in the way he handled delivering that speech. Uh, I want you to reflect, if you would. You're a kid now, and you're hanging out with Grandpa. Do you, what did you guys talk about? You, you recall? He didn't get
4: into details about baseball. You know, he would ask me certain questions about, you know, what, what kind of glove do you like, you know? Or do you like this kind of glove? you like that kind of glove? You know, what kind of bat? Uh, you know, how do you stand? I mean, he didn't really show me. He just kind of asked me questions and kind of logging it in. So like, well, you know, it's like if you keep going uh, playing baseball, maybe one of these days I'll really show you how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> but baseball was his favorite subject. You know, no doubt about that. And uh, anytime he talked about baseball, he didn't, he talked some about himself, but he also talked about other ball players that he played with. Yes. Or had heard about. And I didn't they didn't mean anything to me. Like Satchel Page was one of them. Uh, you know, cool papa about Frank Duncan. And he would just and talk about some of the stories as they were going through barnstorming or just playing different in different teams in different cities. And you know, it, it was pretty light stuff, nothing nothing real heavy. And he never ever pressured me you know, to play the game. He just, he just kind of let it flow and said, you know, do what you want to do and hey, I'll help you if you, if you ask me. Uh, I mean, he didn't say that, but that's kind of what you, you felt. And, and just
0: kind of let me do my own thing for a while. That is absolutely beautiful. Is, is there any particular nugget, jewel of wisdom that you recall that your grandfather may have shared with you that has been something that you kind of lean on now as you've gone through your own life and you know, had children and raising family and grandkids now? Anything that you reflect on that maybe he said to you as a kid that you kind of hold steadfast to your heart? What really stands
4: out more than anything was, was his passion for the game. And I looked at the adversity... And the different conditions that uh, they had to go through to go, you know, from city to city, and you know, game to game, and just all the different issues that they had to deal with. And he just said, you know, don't let adversity destroy your passion. You know, you're above that. Yeah. You know, lift your head up high. Just be yourself, and just know who you are. You know, and he was he was a Christian man. And so, you know, he he based a lot of the things that he said and and how he acted on his faith. And that was sort of the way that he lived his life. I never heard him talk bad about anybody. And even though he never said it, but that was what, you know, I picked up from him. You know, you don't need to talk bad about people. Just show people how good you are. Be nice to everybody. Mm -hmm. But never let... Anybody destroy your passion for the game if you want to do if you want to play baseball, if you want to play football or basketball or whatever you want to do in life, just follow through, give it all you got, and don't let adversity take advantage of you. You know you take advantage of it and just be stronger for it. And that has really helped me uh, not only in my mindset on adversity, but just the fact that, hey, just just keep pushing. You know, if you get knocked down, get up again. Just don't give
0: up on life. You've got too much to offer. It, And that's
4: kind of the way I do now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, that is so beautifully said. And it is so apt to the story that we document here at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. These extraordinarily talented and courageous athletes, they never cried about the social injustice. They went out and did something about it. And he embodies that spirit. And I'm glad that he passed that along to you because despite the hardships that they face as they travel the highways and byways of this country, they just simply refuse to allow it to kill their love of this game. And in the process, Carl, not only did our sport benefit from this, but ultimately our country benefited from the passion that they had for this game that allowed them to overcome The adversity that they faced. And and I think that is a very fitting way for us to close out our conversation about one of the greatest baseball players in baseball history and the Negro League's first great two-way star, the legendary Wilbur (laughs) Bullet Rogan. Mr. Carl Rogan, it has been my absolute (laughs) honor and pleasure. To have you on Black Diamonds, uh, wishing nothing but the best for you and your family. And I'm looking forward to seeing you here in Kansas City, I hope in the not-so-distant future.
4: Well, that's what my plan is, and I appreciate it.
0: If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at nlbmuseumkc. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM podcast network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Andy King is the director of sports podcasting for SiriusXM. Special thanks to SiriusXM's Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.